Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, this fast has been really great for me. I think the other, uh, I've had two longer fasts before, and I think it was a lot of youth and um, ego, and this time feels much more, uh, excuse the cliche, spiritual. And I'm deriving a lot of spiritual benefit from it, so I'm thoroughly uh, appreciative of this opportunity. I've lost so far, as of this morning, about 12 pounds. So I'm less rock and more like Fight Club, Brad, um, you know, uh, I can't remember his name. Brad Pitt. Somebody else said it. That's wonderful. A <laughs> um, couple of pre-sermon comments here before we get started. Uh, last week, Brent preached on this exact passage, and uh, he did a fantastic job. I was super proud of him and uh, just really excited about him as an up-and-coming leader. And uh, I want to tell you that he is a called person. He's not just some guy doing a youth thing, but he really is a pastor and a pastor in training. And I'm privileged to be uh, in this position of investing in him as a leader and as a pastor And uh, I want to say to you, especially if you are a parent of middle school or high school kids, or if you have friends who have children who are in middle school or high school, that Brent is a gifted, called, and trustworthy person. And I have full confidence in entrusting uh, our middle school and high school kids. And my oldest daughter is going to be in middle school next year uh, into his spiritual care. And I think you should as well. And you should have full confidence to invite uh, your friends to entrust their kids uh, to Brent's ministry. And so know that about Brent and know our enthusiasm and support for him. And the reason I'm preaching on the same passage as Brent is not because uh, he only did half his job, but it's because uh, he was doing part one and I'm going to do part two today. Okay. Uh, Second, the children's ministry is wonderful. What happens upstairs and down here, it's just great. Christine Nakano, our interim children's ministry pastor, has done a fantastic job. Her biggest uh, heartache each week is having enough volunteers. And so we would love for you to volunteer. And if you look in your bulletins, there should be a sign-up sheet in there. If you are single, if you have kids, if you are uh, empty nesters, this is a great ministry for you to help out in. It comes pretty infrequently, the more volunteers we have. And so please sign up and do that and invest in these little kids' spiritual well-being. The three values are fun, safe, and Jesus. So one of my things is I don't want to teach them about morality and about, you know, how to be good people because then they have to spend their adult lives learning that it's not about being good. So we want to teach them from the very beginning that it's really about Jesus. And so every story we teach from the Old Testament to the New is about Jesus and not just some moral lesson. Really great. Lots of fun, hands-on stuff. You will have a good time. Okay. And uh, last, just a word about the staff that I get to work with. I want you to know that the staff, we are in a fantastic place. <clears throat> we really uh, love each other a lot, but more importantly, we really like each other a lot. There's a lot of laughter, a lot of heart connections to trust is growing. And, and so I'm just deeply 
thankful for the staff that I get to be a part of. And I wanted to share that with you because that should give you good peace of mind, knowing that the good that's happening in the staff will only overflow and uh, impact our church as a people and as a congregation. And so thank you for supporting the staff of this church. Okay, would you uh, bow your heads and say a quick word of prayer with me here? God, I want to thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you that we are here. Uh, It's my belief that every single person is here by your will. And I believe that you have a word for us. I pray that you would encourage us and you would lift up our hearts and give us hope. Every single person, I pray that you would meet where they are at. We bring with us burdens and secrets and needs and just different seasons and places in life. And uh, you, oh God, know intimately and in detail uh, everything about us. And so minister to us as only you can. Holy Spirit, breathe your life into this place. We invite you to be here in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to continue today in our series in the book of Romans. The series is called The Reason for Grace. We believe in grace because we believe grace is rare. It only exists in Jesus Christ. The love of God that's been poured out to us through his son, Jesus Christ, is where we find unconditional love. Everywhere else we look in the world, in our lives, in ourselves, in other people, in institutions, it's all conditional. And it doesn't have the power that's necessary to save us. And in particular today, as we're going to talk about, to restore us into the true image of God in which we were created. To do this work of integrating me as a person. I believe that we are all disintegrated. That our identities are fractured. That we are confused about who we are and who we're not. We live out of different selves and we're wearing other people's clothing. And we are lost. We are grasping. And only God, only grace can reintegrate us. So two points today, and some people from the first service were joking that it's two points in quotes because there's many, many uh, points within these points. And the conclusion itself is filled with many uh, pearls of wisdom, shall we say. Okay, two points. Only grace reveals the heart. And two, only grace changes the heart. Okay, ready? Only grace reveals the heart. Let's start with verse 15. Verse 15 asks this question, which we've asked before in some other form. But here it is. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Do you understand why this question is there? Why does Paul have verse 15 here? What he's saying is this. This question, the fact that we are asking this question reveals, reveals our slavery to sin. You notice in verse 16, Paul uses either or language, right? 
He says, either you are a slave to sin or we're a slave to God or slave to righteousness. It's either or. This is the binary nature of our existence. Either you are a slave to sin or a slave to God because God made you to be a servant of his. And if you reject God, you automatically, by default, fall into the other, other category of being a slave to sin. You don't have a choice. It's either or. Like, it's like rock climbing. Your foot has to be on something. Right? You don't float. So either you're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to God. And the fact that we ask this question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, reveals our slavery not to God but to sin. He's asking, why do you want to sin? Why are you thinking in terms of sin? Why is sin an option? Why is that the automatic place that we go to? We're not asking this question as a neutral spectator. We're certainly not asking this as a slave of God, but as a slave of sin. Right? And he explains later on in this passage that unrighteousness leads to further unrighteousness. We already talked about this. I'm not going to cover it. That's the nature of sin, which is addiction. Right? It just, we just keep wanting more and more and we start spiraling down and out of control. That's what it means to be a slave of sin. Do you know that God gave Adam and Eve one law? Don't eat from this tree. That's all God said. There was no dress code, right? Just don't eat from this tree. Do you know how many laws Moses had to give based on that one law? Does anybody know a specific number? 613 is the minimum count. Different scholars actually have different ways of interpreting all the different laws. And so we don't know if it's 1A and 1B and 1C or if it's 1, 2, 3. So some say, you know, you know, well above almost 700. Some say 613. And that's the lowest count. At minimum, out of one law. Is that because our human hearts are pure? Because we're not slaves to sin? No, that's because we're devious creatures. We are addicted to sin. We're spiraling. We want to sin. Our hearts are wicked. And from our hearts, our imaginations are engaged. And our imagination devises a plan. And then we begin to execute it in action. That's the question, shall we sin? Where does shall we sin come from? Um, we experienced some version of this this week. Uh, the Sung family had a pretty good week because, uh, and it takes doesn't take much for us to have a good week. Uh, this week, our week is owed to uh, Bed Bath and Beyond because uh, our vacuum cleaner broke. And uh, it's a little handheld that we bought about four years ago. It's a Dyson vacuum cleaner. Do you know, anybody know what a Dyson is? Dysons are expensive, but they're great. Their batteries are not nickel, metal hydride, but it's lithium ion. It lasts forever. The charge lasts like 20 minutes of just on full blast. It sucks up everything. I have four little kids and a dog, and so absolutely essential. But after four years of solid use, it stopped working this week. Just stopped. 
And we were just kind of sad about this, and dust was collecting in our house. Because God knows we can't use a broom if we have a vacuum cleaner. And, uh, and then I had this brilliant idea. We bought this at Bed Bath & Beyond. Does anybody know Bed Bath & Beyond's return policy? It's fantastic. It's like no questions asked. So, you know, I uh, deployed my agent, field agent for this. And so Susie goes into Bed Bath, <laughs> brings in this vacuum cleaner and says, we bought this about four years ago. It just stopped working. And they said, oh, we're so sorry. And they handed her a brand new, this is over $200, vacuum cleaner. Brought it home. She texted me on the way, Peter, you're not going to believe it. (laughs) Made our week. How did this happen? It's the law of grace, the lifetime guarantee. And my heart immediately seized it. How do we get free stuff? How do we exploit this guarantee? And then my imagination. Oh, I will send Susie in because she has less shame than me. She'll just bring it in. But we're Christians. We're not going to lie. Four years we've had this. Four years. No receipt. Nothing. You'll have to take take our word for it. But that was the plan. We executed it. And voila. This is the human heart, human imagination, human planning, human execution. The law of grace, Paul says, reveals our sinfulness. Our hearts are filled with sin. We are set apart by sin for sin. And the way we know this is when grace approaches, we immediately want to take advantage of it. We want to exploit it. Shall we sin? No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. I love grace. I love God. I just want to know if I sin more, will I get more grace? That's all. I uh, was surprised at a birthday party. Uh, I think this was now maybe 10 years ago. And uh, this is my first and only birthday, surprise birthday party. And uh, Susie had been planning this for weeks. It was our small group and some other people at the church. And they had been just behind my back, lying to my face and planning this wonderful occasion. And I was truly and thoroughly surprised. And when I was, what was my emotion? What did I feel? The first thing I felt was totally unworthy. Have you ever had a surprise birthday party? It's totally humiliating. Because I realized just in a, in a split second, my mind started doing all this math. Like, I've been interacting with these people for like a you know, month that this has been going on. How did I treat them? Was I a jerk? Did I act in a manner that was worthy of their love at this point? What did I do or didn't do? How did I pull them along to this point? And I realized I was just being my oblivious, rude, very overly direct self. Oh my gosh, and they're loving me anyway. And as they lavished their grace on me, what I felt was my own sense of unworthiness. Grace reveals our sinfulness. Of course, there's a biblical example of this. When Jesus is first interacting with Peter, one of his disciples, 
Peter's been fishing all night, and Jesus comes on the boat and says, Actually, toss your net right over there. Peter says, Lord, I've caught nothing, but because you say so, I'll do it. He does it, catches so much fish that the nets start tearing. And then Peter, instead of saying, Wow, he says, Away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Grace reveals his sense of unworthiness. So here's what we see. Nearness of grace reveals sin, but the presence of grace abolishes it. Did you catch that? The nearness of grace reveals sin. The presence of grace abolishes it. Married, uh, going on 17 years now with Susie, and I got to tell you, she is an incredibly accepting and supportive and positive person. This is Susie's mood all day. All day. And she just works really hard to find something good in people. She doesn't criticize me. She doesn't nag me. She doesn't judge me. Just When she sees me, she just smiles, throws her arms around me. And that's kind of who she is all the time. And that nature of hers, that gracious nature of hers has changed me more over these last 16 plus years than all of my critical thinking and analytical skills combined. I have tried really hard to transform this woman. And I look back and I see that she has changed me far more. There is no competition here. I'm not being overly nice about Susie because I'm speaking publicly about her. This is really how it is. She, God, has used her to change me through her graciousness. That when I'm in the presence of grace, it's transformative. I can also speak about my staff. You know, Brent... I don't know if you have met him. You really should because it's a treat to interact with this guy. He is just like Nathan in the Bible, in whom there is no guile. Just the things that come out of his mouth are so funny all day long. Chris and I laugh all day at the things Brent says. Because he's just guileless. And that is impacting me. Uh, that really highlights the, all the complexity and the layers, the things that come out of my mouth. I think about Chris and his clarity. Chris has what I call court vision. Like I'm Mr. Blinders on. I just, I'm, I'm laser all day, focused, zeroed in on one thing and digging deep and trying to understand the universe through it. And Chris is like, he sees the whole thing. I love his court vision, but it's really impacting me. It's helping me to see things I never noticed before. He's not criticizing me about my narrowness. He's not coming at me at all. Never has, probably never will. But the fact that he is that way, that I'm in his presence, is impacting me. You know, uh, researchers tell us that conscientiousness, this is what they call it, is the single greatest predictor of somebody's uh, success and happiness in life. Conscientiousness. And Kevin Swanson is Mr. Conscientious. He is so conscientious. It's just mind-blowing to me. But it's transforming me. I am so aware of the things now that he's aware of. He never puts it on me. But the fact that he is that way and operates out of that is impacting me. 
What about Christine? One of the things that's true about her is that she loves being a pastor. She has said to me over and over again, I love ministry. I love ministry. Doing ministry is like getting paid to eat ice cream. I love it. And that is impacting how I feel about ministry. She never says to me, Peter, you should love ministry more. Never. But it's helping me to appreciate, is ministry lovable? Is there something to really love about ministry? She's made me curious. What about Julie? Nobody at the church, I don't think, cares about everything the way Julie cares about everything. Her heart is filled with care. If Julie has met you, if she knows you, if you tell her a story, she will care about you. She cares about every little thing that's happening in our church. And that's impacting me because I tend to be more compartmentalized. Only grace reveals the heart. Second, only grace changes the heart. Verse 17, there's a really key word and phrase in here. And I want to point it out. And I want to park here for a little bit because I don't want you to miss it. And chances are you missed it. Paul says this little phrase. He says, obedient from the heart. Do you know there's a difference between obedience and obedience from the heart? What's the difference? Why does Paul just say obedient? He says obedient from the heart. And what I believe Paul is saying is this. The fundamental problem that we have is the heart. It's not what we do. Stay with me. It's not even what we think. But it's really a question of the heart. That our hearts are wicked. That our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are deceptive. And out of the heart, we engage our imagination. And from the imagination, we devise a plan. And from the plan, we execute. But where it starts is the heart. When Moses had to expound on God's one law, why? What was he addressing? He is addressing the human heart and its capacity for evil and for scheming and for darkness, for covering up, for exploiting people, for using people for hating on people, for being self-oriented. It's the human heart. And so God's ultimate challenge is to help us to be obedient, but not just obedient, but it's obedient from the heart. And part of how he does that is through the mind. We have in verse 21 and 22, Paul asks this question, what benefit were you then deriving? And he's asking us to compare. When you are a slave of sin, what benefit? And the word benefit is the Greek word for fruit. Right? I think it should be translated fruit because that's the word, fruit. So what fruit were you deriving when you were a slave of sin? Think about it, he's saying. Compare. Do the math. Pros and cons. Right? And then now that you are a slave of God, what are the benefits? You compare. Do the cause-benefit analysis and you decide in your mind what's better. 
But that information, unless it changes the heart, cannot fundamentally change you. What we are needing is not information. Information doesn't save us. But it's the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the presence of God within us that changes the heart, which engages the imagination, which then engages the mind, that is the planning, and then the will, we act. What are the desires of your heart? Who are you on a heart level? And Paul goes on to explain in verse 22 to 23 that sin doesn't love you. But its desire is to kill you. God said this to Cain. Do you not know that sin is crouching at your door? And its desire is to consume you. It's to kill you. It's to destroy you. That is to say, you derive no benefit from sinning. All you derive is death. The wages, right? What you get for that work, for that enslavement is death. But compare it to God. God, on the other hand, promises you Life. God will change your heart. It will make your heart hard soft. He will take your old and give you new. So only grace changes the heart. Now, let me come to the conclusion, but the conclusion is like a point and a half. Okay, don't get too excited. What's actually happening when a heart is changing? When the human heart is being changed, what's happening? Verse 22 has another little word uh, that I don't want you to overlook, and it's the word sanctification. Do you see it? Resulting in sanctification. And this is the Greek word holy. And holy means to be set apart for one singular purpose. So in the Bible, if you have a holy object, it was used for one purpose only. It wasn't a Swiss Army knife. Only one use. Pure. One thing. That's what we mean when we say pure gold. 24 karat gold means that there are no other elements that are mixed into it. There's no copper. There's no silver. It's only gold. Pure gold all the way through. If you took a brick of gold and you cut it in half and you looked at the cross section, it's not like gold on the outside. That'd be gold plated. But it's gold in the middle and it's gold in the core. Gold all the way through. Pure gold. And what God is trying to do for us is to sanctify us. That is to make us holy. And Paul gets into this a lot more in chapter 12. But here he's hinting at it. What he's saying is this. You were made originally by God for one purpose. You were meant to have a pure heart. A heart that loves God. And God only. There is no competition with other loves. You have one love in your heart. And out of this love for God, you love everything else in such a way that when you love your neighbor, you're actually loving God. When you love your children, when you love the world, you're loving God. When you're enjoying sports and you love ice cream, you are loving God. So that in all things, you are loving God. This is what he defines as worship. You are giving your whole self to him because you are giving him your whole 
heart. Your heart is set apart, made holy for Him. And you, when you cut your heart, and you look at the cross section of your heart, you see nothing except love for God. This is why you were made. This is what it means to be fully alive. This is what it means to be fully human. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, meaning the second is based on that. You love your neighbor as yourself as a way to express your love for God. And I tell you right now that I am not at this place. I am not somebody who is pure in my heart. I am not holy in that literal sense. But I lack integrity. And here's another word. It's our word for the word holy. Do you know what integrity means? Integrity means that if you were to take a cross-section of a person, their outer actions match their inner motives, match the core of who they are. And so we want our politicians and our leaders to have integrity. That means they're the same when they're behind a pulpit as they are when they're at home. You want to know that because an integrous person is somebody that's trustworthy because they don't have another person. They're not disintegrated. They don't have a true self and a public self and a private self and a false self. They don't have a mean self and a nice self. They don't play different cards because they're not playing at all. They're just being who they are. But I lack that integrity. I don't have just one thing. I'm not pure. I'm not fully sanctified. That is to say that my identity is fractured. I have multiple purposes. I have multiple meanings in life. I have lots and lots of different values. They don't all flow from the inner heart of who I am. My actions have motives and my motives have motives. And I have feelings, but those feelings may be legitimate or not because they're all based on many, many different layers and different things. My mind is all over the map because I am a fractured person. And I need God to heal me. I need God to sanctify me. When I was younger, I went on a very explicit journey to search for myself. What was I doing? Well, I was living under my parents' roof, so I was trying on their values and their words and their clothes. And then as I got to my teenage years and college, I said, you know, that's not who I am. That's not who I am, so I want to find who I am. So I try on other philosophies and other worldviews and other values. And I tried it on for size and some of it fit, some of it didn't fit. But all of that is assuming there is a true self. Where does the true self come from? It's the original image of God in which I was created. And until I return to that, I'm a disintegrated person. You do a cross-section of me and you see lots of different elements. And God is working to make us holy, to make us one. Who are you? Who are you not? How is God healing you? How is God restoring you to the image in which you were created? You know, when somebody pushes certain buttons and you react a certain way, and then you feel bad afterwards and you think, why did I do that? Why do I do that? When you are reacting that way, you're saying to yourself, that's not who I am. 
That's not who God created me to be. I respond with kindness and with patience and with understanding. But instead, I reacted with impatience and judgment and annoyance. And I don't like it when I do that. What you just did, that is you. No, that is not me. That's, this is chapter 7. This is what we get into in chapter 7. But you see how it naturally leads to this. This war that Paul has with himself. He says, who will save me from this body of death? Because I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Save me from this body of death by making me holy, by sanctifying me, making me one. God set me apart for what, Peter? I guess it's for your purposes. I guess that's truly who I am. When God is changing the human heart, this is what God is doing. God is taking all the broken pieces of your heart and He's making it one. He's mending your heart. And then He lights a fire under it to burn away all the impurities, all of the dross, so you can be pure. Now you think about that and you understand only God's perfect and unconditional love is worthy of our hearts. No human being, no human institution, no body of trendy information out there is worthy of holding your heart in their hands. So, I have five ways and somebody said, no, Peter, you have six ways. So I have six ways um, to help you think about how God does this work. Okay, This is a very practical chapter, and Paul keeps getting more and more practical until we get to chapter uh, 12. And then after chapter 12, he starts getting theological a little bit again. But until then, we're going to stay practical here. So I want to give you six practical ways that um, God works to change and sanctify and make holy the human heart. Okay, the first, uh, I want to mean read it and then go through it. The first is loving self for self's sake, loving God for self's sake, loving God for God's sake, and then loving self for God's sake. First, loving self for self's sake. This is us living just out of our fleshly self. We are in survival mode. We are uh, um, survival of the fittest here. We don't care about other people. We're going to survive and we're going to thrive. We're going to step on you and we're going to eat you, strong eat the weak if we have to. That's loving self for self's sake. And then we have loving God for self's sake. That's saying, I found Christianity. I found Jesus. Great. I will use God as part of my tools. It's how I will survive. It's how I will uh, be a Darwinist and just strong eat the weak still, but you're just using church and God and Jesus for your own gain. And lots of Christians park here and stay here. For lots of Christians, church and Christianity is just an escape mechanism. It's just like another drug. It doesn't help them engage themselves and life and love others better, but it's helpful for them. I just need another fix. I like how I feel when I sing that song. I didn't think about my messed up life. And so you start compartmentalizing and you just get your hit and then you go home and you live your life the way it is. You're still a disintegrated person. And then stage three, we have loving God for God's sake. Where is the self in that picture? The self doesn't exist. In a word, this is just Buddhism. 
Buddhism is the annihilation of the self. Right? It's nirvana. When you finally get there, arrival in Buddhism is the self doesn't exist. Well, Christianity says, no, 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 no. Self is very important. God died for the self. God's will is that you be joined with the eternal so that you can be your full self, full and true self. Lots of Christians also park here. Loving God for God's sake. It's self-annihilation. It's not the same as self-denial. And then we have the fourth stage, loving self for God's sake. This is when you offer up yourself as a living sacrifice. Not a dead one. That'd be stage three. But as a living sacrifice. That you are willing to see that your whole heart and your whole mind and will and strength is supposed to be used for loving God. So you don't take yourself out of the picture. You're just not focused on yourself. And my best metaphor for this is, how's your elbow this morning? Meaning if your elbow is functioning, if it's worshiping the way it's supposed to, you're not aware of it, but it's doing its job. But if you are aware of it, it's broken. That's why it's drawing attention to itself. That's why it's engaging your pain nerves, saying something is wrong. Fix me, fix me, fix me. Loving self, for God's sake. And we'll get to that more in chapter 12. A second way that we experience the change of the human heart is through what I would call the pendulum swing of growth. Meaning that none of us have the capacity to hit the mark the first time around. All of us, we go from one extreme to the next. I remember when I first became a Christian, secular music was the most awful thing. Burn those CDs and tapes. Anybody go through this stage? And then you're like, oh my gosh, there's lots of good music out there that I can use to praise God. And you swing back and all of a sudden, all I'm listening to is secular music. Because Christian music is musically not as, you know, can't compete. And then, oh my God, there's so many bad words and you swing the other way. And you just keep going back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, over time, through seasons, you land at a nice, happy place. But you're not going to be there all at once. This is part of how we grow. When you watch younger people, this is what they do. When you watch older people, this is what we do. This is how we grow. So lots and lots of grace for us who are growing through the pendulum swing of growth. The heart will embrace one thing to its extreme and then let go and then embrace the opposite and then something else. Love, hate, love, hate, love, hate, and then worship somewhere emerges. Third is the scaffolding of growth and change. If you are a teacher in education, you know, to use a human example, um, unconscious competence is like Chris leading us in worship. And for me, conscious incompetence would be me leading us in worship. And to your chagrin, I will be sometimes at unconscious incompetence, just having a good old time and oblivious to how horrible I sound. And then we have growth only happens. I shouldn't say only. Growth mostly happens in the presence and at the expense of others. Whether it's church or job or family or friends, we help each other to grow. 
As scripture puts it, iron sharpens iron. A bar of iron by itself does not a sword make. How do we grow? I am 40 years old. I'm a much better pastor than I've ever been before. And hopefully by the time I'm 50, I'll be much better at it. Much better. But it's going to be at your expense, literally and emotionally. Thank you for paying the price for my growth. But it's iron sharpening iron, so you'll be getting sharpened too. At my expense, you will grow. This is the way the Lord has designed it. And so don't be ashamed of letting others in on your journey. Make what you can public and be open to sharing. Let others in. It may hurt sometimes and it's always not going to be perfect. It gets messy. But over time, what you will see is the things that you let others into are the things that you grow in. This is how the heart changes. And then last, we have growth tends to happen through suffering and through discipline. How does suffering change the heart? Well, unless you submerge a camera in water, you can't see where it's leaking. All of a sudden, you see the bubbles come up and you say, oh, there's a crack, there's a crack, there's a crack. And suffering is like that. It reveals who you are underneath. It shows you. That's what the biblical word test, that's what that word means. It's the same word as the word trial. Sometimes translated test, sometimes translated trial. And these trials and these tests reveal where we're at. Right? When you're cut, what do you bleed? When Jesus was cut, what did he bleed? He bled forgiveness and scripture and love and kindness and focus on his mission until it was done. And he said, it is finished. That's who Jesus was through and through. Who are you underneath? You don't even know. That's the Bible's point. You're deceived. You're unconscious incompetent. And suffering allows us to peek in and see a little bit of the darkness that God is trying to burn away to make us holy. Now, these are some of the ways that God works to change our heart. What I want to put before you is the truth, is the fact that our hearts are wicked and it's deceived and it needs transformation. And I want to suggest to you that only God can and is worthy of that kind of task. There is a reason why it's grace. And I want to challenge you to entrust your heart to him today. He is worthy of your heart. And he wants to make you holy. And you want to be holy. You don't want to be a fractured self anymore. You don't want to react out of your false self that you don't like anymore. You don't want to be stuck where you are using God for self-sake. You don't want to be in a place of pushing yourself down and denying the fact that you exist by loving God for God's sake. But you want to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice and worship Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's called holy. Would you bow your heads with me?
God, take our hearts and make it your own. You're the one who formed it in the first place. And we need you, the original designer and master creator, to restore us fully into the image of God. So sanctify us, make us holy. You promise us that the fruit of trusting you is life, but the wages of sin is death. God, we bring our shattered lives before you, our disintegrated selves, our fractured identities, our confused minds. We confess that we live out of our broken and false self all day long. And we present that as ourself, but that's not truly who we are. You know who we are. Make us that, we pray so that we may give our whole self to you. I pray this for myself. I pray this for our church. And this I pray in Jesus' name.